Welcome to the Woo Woo Way podcast. My name is Zev Rice. Today's podcast is an audio version of the second in the Sunday teaching series that Brent Bolthouse hosted at his Southern California home. The full video is available on Vimeo, and you can find it by searching Brent and George's name on Google or just on Vimeo itself. Before I introduce the talk, I should say that if you are curious for a bit of background on George, Woo Woo Way, me, or the podcast itself, you can listen to the beginnings of one of the first four podcast episodes. Building on the talks that George gave on the levels of consciousness or the eight chakras in those first few episodes, he is now ready to share with the group the insight that reality as we experience it is illusory, that the three things we have to do to realize this for ourselves, and an elegant, if somewhat anticlimactic, description of what waking up is really like. You don't need to listen to those earlier podcasts to understand this one, but it wouldn't hurt if at least you listened to episode three or four, so you had a framework on the levels of consciousness under your belt. I was at this particular talk four years ago or so at the home of Brent Bolthouse, and I can recall listening to George and thinking how interesting the talk was as he was talking. Then I just left and went back to my normal life and didn't really do anything that much different. And listening to the, the Vimeo again in preparation for this podcast, it hit me what a big deal this is, what he's sharing and how important it is. Here's a guy who, by any measure that I can think of at least, is enlightened. And in about an hour, he's told us the three things we have to do in order to become enlightened ourselves, and then gone on to give us a first-hand account of what it is like on the other side. This is actually quite amazing. Maybe he had us all fooled and what he was saying isn't true, but as he says himself in this episode, what does he have to gain by doing that? Perhaps one reason is because our experience of reality is so strong that on some level we don't believe him. Or at least we can't shake our sense that ourself and the and the world around us is just irrefutably real. And so on some level, we just don't take him seriously. In the event that this is the case, I'm going to take a few minutes to, to explain the concept of reality as not what we believe or experience it to be. And with that as background, perhaps when you listen to it, you will appreciate the full import of what he is saying more so than I did when I first heard it. When George, when George talks about reality as being illusory, it is easy to forget that this is someone who studied neurology and physics at a graduate level. He tends to talk about how Buddha or Jesus viewed this point because their take is, I think, he would do it because their take is more conducive to waking up than the scientists is. Since the time of this talk, I've been thinking and reading a fair bit on this subject of consciousness, the mind, and our perception of reality. So let me just give you a little taste of some of the recent research on this subject from the scientific community. But before I do, I will just repeat George's warning that you will never wake up if you stick at the mental plane, which is, full disclosure, where I am, I am about to go in spades. So here goes. The average person would say that what you see through your eyes is what is actually out there. That's sure how it looks, and I'm betting that's what you think too. But the truth is that you see through your imagination we do not ex directly experience what science has consistently shown us to be the forces and laws of the cosmos. Your eyes and ears, for example, have evolved over the millennia to perceive a very narrow but evolutionarily advantageous set of frequencies on the electromagnetic and sound spectrums. As any young, young physics student learns, the world you are looking out on with your eyes is completely different to the image constructed in your mind. Instead of the objects and colors you perceive, what you're looking at is actually a wild sea of electromagnetic radiation, gravitational waves, dark energy, quantum uncertainty, 
and possibly riddled with dimensions we can't even comprehend, let alone observe. So the objects you see may seem solid and continuous, but they're composed of matter, and the atoms that make up matter, wait for it, are 99.9999999999996% empty space. So it's kind of hard for a brain to think about that many decimal voices. So let's just take a hydrogen atom as an example. And using some very rough math, if you imagine the, the nucleus of the hydrogen atom being the size of an orange, then the electron orbital cloud would be something like 30 kilometers distance. So if the nucleus is the size of an orange, we're at the Santa Monica Pier, for those who know Los Angeles geography, that means the electron cloud wouldn't start until you're over in Glendale or Pasadena somewhere, with apparently nothing at all in between. And that is for a hydrogen atom, which is has one of the smallest atomic radii of any atom. Something like a sodium atom has something that's three and a half times that radius, meaning in my orange example that the electron cloud would be over 100 kilometers away, out past you know, Lancaster or somewhere in the desert, in the Mojave Desert, in, in the uh, LA example. Um, and, and these are the so-called building blocks of matter, and, and yet they're almost entirely empty space. I mean, I, I tap on this table here, and it sure seems solid. It feels solid. It looks solid, but but actually it's uh, 99 point, well, I won't repeat all the decimals, percent empty space. So forget about spiritual dimensions and the higher chakras for a moment. Just at the level of the first chakra in our physical world, we're actually only perceiving and seeing an infinitesimally small fraction of what is actually out there. And recent scientific investigations into the neurology of people suffering from phantom limbs suggest that even our sense of our own bodies is mediated by our imagination. The work of neuropsychologist uh, Peter Bruegger and neuroscientist R.S. Ramachandran are emblematic of this field. It appears from these neurological studies that our consciousness does not directly contact even our own physical bodies. Rather, our brain appears to have developed an evolutionarily desirable internal self-model of the body that allows for swifter processing and response. There's a lot of literature on phantom limbs I, I won't go into, but along these same lines, in, in, a, in a different uh, part of the brain, Years ago, I believe it was neuroscientist David Mackey who made the, a really surprising discovery about our visual processing system. So if you think about our eyes, the, the, the eyes themselves look out onto the world and they send signals to the visual cortex in the backs of our brains, which process those signals into our internal visual model. But first, those signals go through what's called the thalamus, or the visual part of the thalamus. And what Mackey discovered was that there are about 10 times as many fibers going from the visual cortex back towards the visual thalamus, towards the eyes, as they were going in the other direction. Just think about that for a second. It's, this is crazy. What that suggests is that we actually have a detailed and constantly updated visual expectation model in our brains that we sent to the intermediating thalamus so that it has the most up-to-date version of what our consciousness thinks it's seeing. And, and the return information up to the brain is, is a tiny, it's a tenth the size. It's just like a small signal carrying any differences that the eyes happen to spot as they dart around on the scene in front of it. I mean, it's, it, to me, that, that, that just defies um, every expectation I had. But it, it fits into this, this, this same um, concept around 
um, what we're seeing is, is not actually out there. There's a bunch of other um, work on this, but I, I, Thomas Medzinger, who's a, a, a contemporary philosopher, in his 2003 book, The Ego Tunnel, summarized what I've been describing uh, really well. So I, I'll quote him as follows. Quote, The book you're holding right now, that is, the unified sensations of its color, weight, and texture, is just a shadow, a low-dimensional projection of a higher-dimensional object out there. It is an image, a representation that can be described as a region in your neural state space. This state space itself may well have millions of dimensions. Nevertheless, the physical reality you navigate with its help has an inconceivably higher number of dimensions, end quote. I think that captures it pretty well. But I'll just, I'll give you two more examples and then I'll, I'll spare you further discussion on this point because I, I could go on and I think uh, I, I will uh, return to this very topic in future episodes. Um, but the first of the two examples is the one of the uh, Kutenaeus rabbit uh, experiment, which I believe was first reported by the psychologist Frank Geldard and, and Carl Sherrick. In this experiment, imagine a subject with several mechanical tappers placed along their arm. And then these little tappers uh, meet out uh, a series of taps delivered along the arm, say three at the wrist, then five near the elbow, and then two more on the upper arm up near the shoulder, say. So the, the, the way they do the experiment is that the taps last a second or two, um, but the interval between the taps would be somewhere between 50 and 200 milliseconds. The extraordinary thing was that the subjects would consistently report that the taps were traveling up their arms at regular physical and temporal intervals, as if a little rabbit were hopping up their arm at an even gait. I mean, it, it, if you kind of think through what that means, it, it's quite extraordinary. It's, your mind is actually changing your perception of time. Um, the, 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 the fact of, of what you're feeling on your skin is being reordered for some reason. Um, and in case you kind of, my mind immediately jumps to this concept of the mind, well, it just, it just, the conscious mind is just kind of delaying it until the taps are done. Um, but the problem with that is that that assumes that our consciousness is, is sort of like a theater stage on which reality plays out. And, and, and the mind just delays this conscious experience until all of the, ha the, the taps have been received so that it can edit the experience to seem more, uh, even. Um, in case that idea appeals to you as well, uh, the philosopher Daniel Dennett, in his 1991 book, Consciousness Explains, has this to say. I quote, Would the brain always delay the response to one tap just in case more came? If not, how does it know when to delay? End quote. There's another experiment called PHI, if I'm saying that right, P-H-I, and in a variation study by the psychologist Paul Kohlers and Michael von Grunau, they demonstrated the brain's strange ability to manipulate our perception of the timing of actual events in the world in a visual uh, example. In the Kohler's and Grunau version of the Phi, Phi experiment, subjects were shown a screen with two small spots separated by as much as four degrees of visual angle. So if you can imagine a screen in front of you and there's two, um, the, the, there's two spots that are going to be flashed up, each of which has a different color, and the flashes ha are lit, they, they stay lit for about 150 milliseconds, and then there's an interval of about 50 milliseconds in, in between. So, you know, flash of a, 
a you know red light on the uh, red spot on the left, and then uh, a few milliseconds later, uh, a green spot on the on the right. And the extraordinary thing is that when the subjects were asked to report what they saw, instead of saying, "Oh, there's a flash on the left," and then a flash on the right, they said, "Well, there's a a, a, a dot on the left, and then it starts to travel over towards the right, and then halfway across, it changes color." from, in my example, red to green. So if the first spot's red and the second one's green, what happens is that before the, the second spot has been flashed, it appears to the conscious mind that, that it has flashed and it's flashing somewhere else. So uh, obviously there's not any precognition going on. And so the mind is playing some sort of a trick where it's, it's, it's changing the actual perception of time in the brain. Now look, like the Coutinaceous rabbit experiment, psychologists and philosophers have been arguing about this one for decades. So I'm going to resist the temptation to recap some of those lengthy and, and, and quite complex debates and just simply point out that we have yet again uh, more fascinating examples of our minds playing tricks on us and misrepresenting what is quote-unquote out there. So you're not seeing or hearing or feeling what is actually out there or even when it is happening, even when the out there includes your own body. You experience just a narrow range of reality that your senses can perceive, and this is mediated by your imagination. But if you're not paying attention, you don't know what is in your imagination versus what is really happening. All you know is whatever you think you are experiencing, and because you're experiencing it, you assume it is true and valid, not what it actually is i.e. a hypnotic suggestion. George will revisit this, um, and I will um, with him in these upcoming episodes. But the point of all this is that you can take George seriously when he says that reality is an illusion. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to this talk than this point. And uh, before I let you um, over to the talk itself, I would just say, uh, in my, uh, my view... I would highlight three three big points in, in the talk. The first one I've already just gone into about the question um, on the true nature of reality. The second one is that he gives us a method for how to wake up or, or raise our consciousness to, to a higher level. In summary, these three are we have to learn to let go, break habits, and learn to be still. These methods require quite a lot of commitment and time, so don't be fooled how simple it is to hear it said. I mean, he's he's giving you the, 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 the secret the tools to, 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 to become enlightened. Um, and there's other methods and, and, and more than those three. Um, but, uh, I, I, I did, it just kind of, I remember walking out of that session thinking, Oh, that's, that's great. You know, um, that was really interesting, but, but actually in listening to it again, as I say, I, I was blown away to hear that, that he kind of told us the secret. Now it's sort of like, me saying to you, listen, if you want to be a doctor, here's the method. First, you've got to learn how to read and write. Then do a bunch of reading and writing and studying. Then have some real-world experience practicing being a doctor on the super, under the supervision of actual doctors. <laughs> Easier said than done, but nevertheless, he, he lays out the method. The third point to look out for is his description of what it is like to do when you do wake up. Personally, I found this kind of surprising. I mean, you, you read about this sort of thing in the Buddhist canon, and you have phrases like, the perfection of transcendent wisdom or the unexcelled complete awakening. Or you read the Bible and you hear about the kingdom of heaven whose, quote, brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, a jasper, clear as crystal. Or 
the this main city in heaven being with a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and the 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 the, the, the length of the city is 14 mile 1400 miles long and 1400 miles high and so on i mean these sound pretty amazing and exciting well you'll hear george's description towards the end and uh and you can make your own comparison all right here's george Some of you I saw last time and the time before. So I always start out by trying to remind you of the truth. Right here, right now, you're free. If that is not apparently clear to you, if that is not your experience, then I invite you to be a detective and figure out why it isn't so for you. The last two times I've given you examples of people, and I hope... uh, None of you wait to that point where things really hit the dump. I mean, whether it's physically or both physically and emotionally. And they come to a conclusion. This situation in which I find myself is the result of how I deal with life, what I believe about life. And so they began a radical transformation. Well, as I think I mentioned the first time, You know, what's the definition of insanity in AA? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So if this coming week you're going to do the same thing you did last week, and last week you weren't awake to the truth, what's the probability that this week you'll become awakened to the truth? You're doing the same thing today, I mean this week, that you did last week, and probably the week before, and none of those weeks did you ever come to the, oh my goodness, I was never not free. I never was. That was an interesting trick I played on myself. And that's all it is. So you're going to be a detective. You're going to pay attention, give you some things to do, simply to pay attention. Now, you have to recognize that none of the exercises are going to free you. The reason none of the exercises or what I'm telling you is going to free you Because you're already free. You just have to agree. I mean, it's sort of like trying to remember something that you know you know, but you just can't remember at the moment. And somebody says something or something happens, and you go, oh, yes, I now remember. Right now, right here, you are free. The thing is, what have you done that precludes that awareness? So I will throw out suggestions as to what you might have done. And the attitude, again, is for you to pay attention and see what reactions you get. But never am I trying to teach you anything. This is not like philosophy or a class in metaphysics, because part of the thing that got you in trouble is thinking. Now, sometimes I'll say, well, you know, if we can look at another model or an older model, sometimes they they give us tremendous insight. So a long time ago, there was an interesting model as compared to the table that I use, right, which I'll go over again. But in in the old days, they talked about the physical plane, the lower astral plane, the higher astral plane, the mental plane, the subtle plane, and the causal plane. 
Now, really, all that you should take from that is that they recognized that there was something beyond the mental plane. And the reason students delay waking up is they refuse to go beyond the mental plane. They're trying to figure it out. They're trying to understand it. And so they keep themselves in the mental plane. And the thing you have to understand about thoughts, ideas, is that they're very poor algebra. They really are very poor representations of what's actually there. It's like a, like a sketch of a map. Okay? It's like, you know, you, somebody gives you a map and says, uh, you're here and this is where you want to go. All right, take off. And you go, well, which way is north? Well, I don't know. It's, you know <laughs> there it is. So we're going to talk about language, the psychology of language, because partially I've got to convince you that relative to waking up to your true nature, your essence, you have to transcend the mental plane. Now, relative to the physical plane, relative to the astral plane, uh, thinking is quite valuable. I mean, it gets you wonderful results, but relative to waking up to your original nature, and we say original because it was before you did whatever it is you did to cloud your awareness. It isn't original as in you lost it. It's just that's where you started. So if I say, well, Marilyn, where did you start out today? Where did you come from? Um, Which was where? Long Beach. See, she started out in Long Beach. She's not there right now. Well, it's the same thing. That's all we mean by original nature. What were you like before you did whatever it is you did that right now the truth is not apparent? In fact, in the Chinese way of thinking, they call it an open secret. They call it open because it's you and obvious. They call it a secret because until you get it, it's the best-kept secret. So they call it the open secret. Because it's the most obvious. Once you get it or remember, so it's a memory thing. Once you remember, again, you will not believe how you could have ever not been aware of it. The open secret. So your task, then, is to start to go beyond the mental plane, and I gave you an assignment two weeks ago, and I think last week, I said, I want you to start paying attention, right? Every time you're aware of a feeling, I wanted you to do what? What did I want you to say to yourself? I did it. I did it. Well, next week, what I want you to do is take a third-person approach. Oh, look at what George did. Look at what Kelly did. See, every time there's a thought or a feeling, just start doing that. You have to recognize the three things you have to master is letting go. And the reason we practice letting go is because unless you remember what it is specifically you did to cloud your awareness, it's kind of like a blanket thing. You see, you say, well, you know, 
I'm not quite sure where I put the key, so I'm going to start from one do one room and start taking out things until, and then I go to the next room and I eventually find the keys. We practice letting go, letting go, which can be quite beneficial, by the way. How is it beneficial? Well, for instance, uh, you're going to get to the point that whenever there's an emotion that you don't want, you don't like, you're going to remember one of the techniques and let go of it. Let go of it. Because if you don't let go of the emotion, you have very few options. You're either going to express it, you're going to suppress it, or you're going to suffer it. I mean, there's really not a lot of choices, right? Once the emotion is there, it's in your consciousness, so you're either going to express it, okay? Or you're going to repress it and suffer it or let go. Because part of what you did in order to fool yourself was to stop acknowledging your inherent power. See, that's what you started to do. So in an attempt to hide your inherent power, then you're going to let physical events, objects, emotions, thoughts beat you up. Because if you started transmuting those emotions and thoughts and activities, then how could you be powerless? Right? And as we reviewed, isn't wanting control one of the outstanding characteristics of the dysfunctional pattern? Well, why do people want control? Because they feel they're out of control. And why do they feel they're out of control? Because they have forgotten their inherent power. So what's another element of the dysfunctional pattern? Well, try to manipulate. Right? Try to manipulate either people, objects, things, circumstances to change the feeling. And if that doesn't work, the all-time one is what? Denial. Numb yourself if necessary. Escape if necessary. I mean, there's very few strategies left. None of them are very positive. Once you forget your own ability, your own power. Okay? So, we're not here to philosophize. I will try to give you the information in a way that you go out and try it out. And you'll determine for yourself whether it works or doesn't work. Because, again, it's not like a college course. I mean, you're not here to learn anything. If anything, you're here to unlearn. So letting go is one of the things that we practice. Number two, breaking habits. Again, using the model of AA isn't the first step to get out of dysfunctional patterns is to stop, right? I mean, stop what you're doing. Whether it's controlling, manipulating, lying, denying, whatever it is you're doing, stop it. Because you can't get into recovery if you keep exercising the same patterns, okay? So, where most of us right now are too far away from understanding our power to control the mental process. But eventually, you must demonstrate your power by having the ability to initiate an action, keep it going as long as you want, 
and stop it when you want. Initiate an emotion, keep it going, and stop it. Initiate a train of thought, keep it going, stop it. But right now, for most people to attempt to turn off the intellectual process, the conceptualizing, is impossible. In fact, their attempt to do it actually stimulates more thinking. Because they don't understand their ability to simply have the intention and have the power to manifest their intention. So, remember last time I said to you, using the table here, I said to you, every level of consciousness has information. So if you want to get smarter, move to a higher consciousness. Every level of consciousness has a power, an ability, energy. So if you can't do something in one level of consciousness, move up at least one or two, and you'll have the power to do what you couldn't do before. Every level of consciousness has a sensibility. The higher the consciousness, the, beautiful, the more beautiful the sensibility. So, as an example, from fear to bliss. We let the surface of the table represents, represent a sense of identity. And the bottom of the table, your actual experiences. So, one of the things I've said to you before is, Anybody at any time can move up and down the level of consciousness. But if you don't stay there long enough or often enough, it will not lead to a change in identity. You have to either do it long enough or often enough that you say, whoa, I thought I was Marilyn. My goodness, I'm not Marilyn. There she is. And now I can help her. Because I'm the one with the power. I'm the one with the power, so I can help her. But as long as I believe myself to be Marilyn, I have to resonate at her frequency. And it's going to be dependent on the level of consciousness. So it's like putting your hands behind your back and trying to live something. Remember a long time ago, uh, a friend of mine, we were out shooting some baskets you know, just on the playground, just talking. And these two little boys came up. They must have been like eight or nine. Okay? And they said, can we play with you? I said, yeah, okay. You know, so they started shooting baskets. They said, okay, we'll play you. My friend and I against you too. You know, we're adults, right? They're little kids, right? So, well, if there's going to be a game, we decided what? We weren't going to raise our hands. We weren't going to jump. And we were going to shoot only with the opposite hand. Okay? So we were both right-handed. We were only going to shoot with the left hand. Otherwise, there would be no game. That's what you did. You decided to do things Limit your abilities and powers that are yours. Except we did it consciously. Okay? We did it consciously. And although it's not 
Well, let's, I changed my mind as I'm thinking about it. So, one of these young men, again, eight, nine, was pretty good. I mean, you know, he was making baskets. Right? So, I, you know, if he was him, it's probably about this height differential, right? And he, Joe was making all these baskets. I'm just standing there. I'm not raising my hands. If the ball doesn't go in, I don't jump. So he gets the ball, gets to shoot it again. Okay? We're getting beat. Because this kid is just, okay? So I said to my friend, Lee, we, we got to change strategies. And they're looking at us, right? I said, now, you know, Lee, I have that magic touch, right? He says, oh, yeah, George, you got that magic touch. Well, Lee, you know, if I touch him on the back of his right knee, he cannot make a basket. He says, oh, I don't know. That's fair, George. I said, well, we're going to lose the game. He said, okay, touch him. So he kind of backs up, you know, I go and I tap him. I said, well, then I don't need to guard him. So we're both guarding this other little boy. Now he's by himself, and he cannot make a basket. I want to show you an example of how you have hypnotized yourself. You just don't recognize it. You have hypnotized yourself into the state of existence that you have. So we won. So Lee says, well, George, you can't leave him there. I mean, come on, you know. I said, yeah, okay, let me tap him on the other knee, and then he'll make the baskets. So now he was more willing, right? <laughs> He's okay with that one. Okay. Tap him on the back of the knees. I said, no, look, you're, you're going to make them. And he starts making them. He starts making them. You see, you're constantly giving yourself suggestions. Except you're not aware. You're not aware of what you're telling yourself. You're not aware of under what circumstances you're telling yourself. You think it's just an offhanded remark. But you've accepted a suggestion and you're going to play it out. And once you have the experience, then it verifies the suggestion. It becomes entrenched as a belief, and then it keeps reappearing in your life over and over again. Levels of consciousness. So, if you look at last week, just looking at last week, how many times, as you were dealing with life, did you ever say, isn't that interesting? I'm not John. Look at John. Hey, look, look what he's doing. I'm not Sean. Look what he's doing. I bet you most of you thought, you, what I call you, that part that is free, has never been bound, was doing it. And the biggest clue is how often you use the word I. Okay. So when I say you're going to be a detective, part of it is to start paying attention. Because the ultimate state, again, in the Chinese system is called to be fully awakened, to have that 
vivid alertness. A luminous, free-floating, blissful sensibility. But in contrast to that, for instance, what did Jesus call people? The walking dead. What did the Buddha call the average person? A walking robots. See, that's the opposite state of alertness. The walking dead. That's how low the level of consciousness most people are living in. And if you think about it, therefore, if every level has a power, the lower the level, the less power you have. So what's the mantra of the dysfunctional person? He, she, it did it to me, and there was nothing I could do about it. So the best thing I could do was get angry. Run away. That was the best thing I could do. He, she, did it to me. Because if you're in a very low consciousness, it's like saying, okay, I won't raise my hand. I won't jump. I won't use my strengths, my abilities. And that's your experience. All right. Well, you have a terrible habit. You know, some of you think you have bad habits. You have a terrible habit, an addiction relative to waking up. It's called thinking. It's called thinking. As we keep going, and I explain thinking, the psychology of, the neurology of thinking, it'll become apparent to you that relative to waking up, Relative to regaining a consciousness, an awareness of your true nature, thinking is disastrous. Relative to business, you know, everyday life, it's wonderful. It's a very useful tool. You're just using the wrong tool in this process. Okay? So when I say to you, we're not here to philosophize. We're not going to give you more ideas that, you know, you can hang on to. Whatever I'm telling you is simply to try to point in a direction or to encourage you not to do something. Because if you're already free, what is it that can be done to free you? Nothing. But the interesting question is, what could have been done to bind you? Nothing. You had to do it for yourself. You had to agree not to remember. And at the time, you may have thought it was a good idea, except you got in the habit, and you forgot to stop it. So you're going to practice letting go. You're going to stop breaking habits. You're going to break habits and learn to be still. 
learn to be still. And that is the last thing your subconscious mind, ego, want to do. Be still. But those are the things you're going to learn to do. And again, will they awaken you? Nah. But at least while you're doing that, you're probably not practicing what hypnotized you. It's like if you're in the habit of watching television, you go to the library, right? Can't watch television. So the exercises are just to help weaken that which you keep doing over and over again. So make it very practical. If right now it is not clear to you unequivocally that you are free, then I suggest you start some introspection and try to figure out why you're not. What is it you do on a moment-to-moment -moment basis to cloud that awareness? Now, on the way there, you're going to change some things. So we're going to talk about different things in a slightly different way. Again, not because I want you to hold on to them and then that's going to be what you're going to hold on to because you're already very good at holding on. You've already mastered holding on. Okay, Boy, you can hold on to fear for days. Anger, a couple of weeks. right? You've already mastered holding on. Just letting go. You haven't quite mastered. It's being still. You haven't mastered. So if you're going to practice letting go, why would you hold on to what I'm telling you? It's just to stimulate, uh, to try to get you to have a different, slight, different point of view, and then drop it. And drop it. Okay? If it helps you, wonderful. If it doesn't, drop it faster. Right? So again, whatever we talk about, ultimately, should lead to an empirical change in your life experiences. So you're going to practice. So you see, trying to break that habit of a quickly assigning the power to something else. I mean, are we in the habit of saying, you know, I was talking to Julie, and I decided that I've, I've tried talking to Julie, and there's two of them, so I get to practice. I, 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 I decided that talking to Julie in a jovial frame of mind didn't work. So I'm going to now get angry and generate anger and have a conversation and see if I get different results. Now, what do I say? Julie makes me angry because she won't listen. See, I have wonderful theories of why my emotions are there. But in my theories, I never say, oh, it's because I haven't trained myself. I haven't trained myself not to give me that emotion. Now, how long is it going to take you to wake up? 
I don't know. You could do it in the next moment. Since you're already awake, there's only what? An agreement to wait. That's all we are. One agreement to wait. That's how far we are. I'm telling you the truth. And I need from you what? Oh, yeah, of course. Jeez. Two plus two is four. That's how far away we are. But if you don't get it, well, then we have to do a variety of things. And because you're the one that keeps yourself in this clouded state. And Nikki won't tell me how she does it. I got to outsmart her, okay? Because <laughs> she won't tell me what it is she's doing. So I, I got to tell her to do this. I tell her to stop doing this. I, I tell her this story, okay? Because I'm trying to catch her off balance. By the way, that's why the Zen masters walked around bashing people with their poles. <laughs> To try to get him off balance. Okay. To create an opening in which the truth becomes apparent and that it's not a secret anymore. It's not a secret anymore. Okay? So, what you must remember, and it's very practical, I, I'm going to stress that over and over again. You cannot solve the problem you're in using the consciousness that created the problem. You cannot solve your problem, whatever your problem is at the moment. You cannot solve it in the consciousness that created it, which is probably the one you're still in, or you wouldn't be having the problem. It's really very empirical. Okay, You're still having the problem. You're in the consciousness that created the problem. What to do? Move to a higher consciousness. And a variety of possibilities occur. But you will stop creating the problem. Because everything is a matter of perception. If you change your consciousness, you see what you didn't see before. And in changing your perception, what you had created before can disappear. Therefore, from a pretty high consciousness, it can be said, it can be said. Right now, I don't know that it's your experience, but it can be said from a higher consciousness that all lacks illness, ignorance, is a lie. It's a lie. Because once you see the truth, two plus two is four. It's not five, six, seven, or whatever, any other number. But if you still see it as a problem, if you still see it as an error, as a lack, then you're still in the consciousness that created it. And even at first, when I give you the solution, move to a higher consciousness, you're still going to say, yeah, but I don't understand how that's going to change the situation. 
Well, how is it going to change the situation? The consciousness that created it is no longer dominant. Therefore, the situation changes. What do we do? We play with the problem, right? We try to solve it. We try to figure out. And the worst thing you do is you ask your friends for an opinion. And they are undoubtedly, at least at your level of consciousness or below, be still and see what happens. Okay? Be still. Because now you've changed your consciousness. See. What we call things, what we call objects, are nothing more than a way of perceiving. That's, that's what they are. It's a way of perceiving. That's not what you want to see. You change your perceptions. Again, but what makes it so difficult for us is that whatever the level of consciousness we're in, and you're probably not aware of it yet, you give that consciousness reality. You're like a special ingredient, okay? Whatever you put your consciousness on, you put this special ingredient, and it appears real. So it doesn't look like it, but things, objects, seen that way is the perceiving of an illusion. Things seen as solid, as real, are an illusion because you're not at the consciousness to detect the flow of energy, creating the pattern, and changing the pattern. That's why they're called illusions. You're not actually seeing what is happening. So things, objects, bodies, <laughs> seen as real, as having their own existence, independent of you as the projector, are called illusions. Because you're not seeing what's actually there that would be obvious at a higher consciousness. You know, way before the Greeks came up with the word Adam, the Hindus had an interesting word, Anu. And this Anu was actually served the same function as a photon. It was a quantum of light, of energy. And everything, they said, was composed of these Anus. Most of you right now are not seeing the Anus. You're not seeing the Anus. So since you're not seeing them, how can you see living 
You probably see life, but you don't see living because you're not at the consciousness that would allow you to see this dance of light. So you see things as solid, you see them as things, and never see your involvement in what's going on. So as Buddha said, there's no out there that you do not project. There is no out there that you did not project until you see that interaction between the projector projecting and what was projected you're at a very low consciousness that's why it's called waking up right it's like wow look at that I never saw that before I didn't see that before and then after a while you're gonna say how come I never saw it before I mean, it's so obvious now. I don't understand why I didn't see it before. Okay, so I'm telling you, you know, right now as you look around of everything, you know, the tree looks solid to you. You're involved in an illusion. If you do not see the dance of Anus creating the, the apparency of a tree, and the reason there's an apparency of a tree is because it's your interpretation of that dance. You're interpreting the dance of these Anus as a tree. And you keep the dance going, so you just ignore the influx and the outflux of these Anus. And you say, well, I don't see what you're talking about, George. That tree looks exactly the same thing as last week, the same way. Because self-consciousness never pays attention to details. It glosses over. The subconscious mind is even worse. That's why things are not obvious. Because these mechanisms just glance. And if there's a modicum of similarity, they go, oh, yeah, that's a tree that was there next week. Oh, yes, that's Marilyn. Because until you get to transpersonal consciousness, you don't see details at the level you need to, at the level we're referring to today. Of course, you see details. You say, oh, she's wearing black. But what makes it black? And are we all seeing the same black? Not likely. So you're going to learn to pay attention if you want to wake up. If you don't, you don't have to do these things. The good news is, even if you don't do it in this lifetime, you're going to do it somewhere along the way, okay? A hundred lifetimes from now, <laughs> two hundred. The only unfortunate thing about that is what? You've been suffering all the way along. 
That's the only unfortunate thing, right? So 50 lifetimes from now, you decide you're going to wake up and you say, my God, for the last 40 years, I've gotten myself beaten up. And I didn't have to. I didn't have to do that to myself. So you're going to have to do three things. Let go. Break habits. Now, I'm not suggesting you do something radical and stupid, huh? Just pick a habit that you're in and say, okay, for a couple of days, I'm, I'm going to do it slightly different. I.e., I'm not telling you not to brush your teeth, okay? <laughs> I'm not telling you not to do that. But maybe brush it in the side of the sink, okay? Or do it left-handed. I mean, just start breaking habits because you're calcifying your neurological patterns in a particular pattern. That's why you're having trouble letting go. Your patterns of behavior are getting crystallized in neurological patterns. That's why it takes time to change. Okay? Mentally, you can grasp an idea, you know. But until the neurology changes... It's not going to stick. So as a group, race, right? What's one of the biggest problems? The calcification of the frontal lobes. The calcification of the frontal lobes. It's such a huge problem that until very recent, neurologists believed that was the fate of the homo sapien. That when they became adults, the frontal lobe would crystallize, become like the appendix. Okay, so we're talking about breaking habits. Isabella, what's a good way of crystallizing the frontal lobe from a dietary point of view? <laughs> Boy, you sound like you know them. Now, have you stopped? ingesting those things? Well, good, right? Because it's one thing to know, right? Now, Kelly didn't hear you, so you're going to have to say it louder. Yeah, okay? That's the best way to calcify the frontal lobes. Okay? Is that what the average person does? <laughs> you can see why the race is in a mess. Okay. Now, what's a good way to do the opposite? Because, geez, if, you know, if we couldn't change it, that'd be terrible, right? What's a good way to reverse the process? Aris, what would you say? What would you offer us? Meditate. What else? Anything else? I'm sorry? Yeah. Go to greens. Right? Because greens what? Alkaline the body. Okay? The more acidic the body is, the harder it is to change the patterns of the brain. So, we ingest more greens. Right? Less sugar. 
That's your number one problem. Sugar. Because if you're addicted to sugar, you're no different from the alcoholic. From a chemical point of view, it does the same thing. Except it's not as obvious <laughs> how your behavior changes after a nice big chocolate bar. Okay? If we had a EEG on your brain, we could show you <laughs> that the pattern of firing was the same as someone who just took two shots. See? Breaking habits. Now, is it easy to break habits? No, that's unfortunate, isn't it? I mean, breaking habits is not that easy unless you start believing what? Hey, I have the power to change, therefore they're going to be easy. But if you don't start that belief that you have the power, then breaking habits seem to take a little bit of time and effort. So just starting with something as simple as that, changing your diet. So what's the biggest value ours of meditating? That's it. You're probably not doing what you were typically doing to cloud your awareness. <laughs> That's probably the biggest advantage, okay? Is meditation going to wake you up, Aris? No. Nothing's going to wake you up until you decide to wake up. Until you get sick and tired of being a walking dead. <laughs> You're not going to wake up. That's why it has to be a focused, one-pointed intention. I've had it. I'll wake up. And then things start to change. You start to see yourself becoming more and more awake. It's a, it's a good model. It's a good model because, you know, when you first wake up in the morning, right? I mean, if there's not a lot of light in the room, you haven't turned it on, right? There's not a lot you can see. Then you turn the lights on and there's more you can see, right? And hopefully by noon, <laughs> you can see even more, right? So it's not a bad model, okay? Every level is like turning on a brighter light. Oh, wow. I never noticed that. I never noticed that. There is nothing that can affect my imperturbability. There is Nothing that can take away my equanimity. There is no one. Kelly's not quite sure. So mentally make a list of people who irritate you. <laughs> Frustrate you. <laughs> make you sad. Anxious. 
you agreed to play the game. Because other than your agreement in the game, no one can take your equanimity. So what's one habit you're going to stop, hopefully? He, she, it didn't do it to me. Stop blaming. That's one of the elements of the dysfunctional pattern. Blaming. So you have to stop. You're going to break habits. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> levels of consciousness. So, for instance, a moment ago I said, let's look at the projector, projecting, projection. Three elements. You move to a higher consciousness, and there's only two. You move to a higher consciousness, and there's only one. You move out of the realm of consciousness, and all there is is zero squared. You need the square of the zero, by the way. Later on, you'll see why. Don't call it zero, because that will get you in trouble. Okay? So if it makes sense that there's a doer, and doing, and done, if it makes sense, then you see you're verifying your consciousness. But if you say, no, there's not three, there's not two. No, it's, I see now, there's not three and there's not two. Then you're verifying which consciousness you're in. So your experiences are reporting back to you where you are in consciousness and in understanding. What does life look like to you? So I said to you before, if you're in self-consciousness, some of you are even going to remember, if you are in self-consciousness and below, there are several things I can guarantee you as your experience. What is one of them, Nina? Wanting. Wanting. Isn't that interesting? So if you're in wanting, if you're in desire, you're no higher than self-consciousness. Wanting is a guaranteed experience if you're in self-consciousness or below. So what's one solution for wanting? To A, recognize it as a feeling and let go. B, move to a consciousness in which there is no wanting. Okay? What do we do? We try to do the opposite of the wanting. Huh? We try to satisfy the wanting, which keeps us locked in to that consciousness. What's another experience I can guarantee you if you're in self-consciousness and below? A sense of separation. Think of how much time and energy we spent 
trying to get the feeling of connection. And think how miserable we feel when we don't feel connected. As long as you're in self-consciousness, you're going to have to deal with separation. It'll keep showing it to you over and over again. Wanting separation. What else? Lack. If you are aware of lack, you're no higher than self-consciousness. Lack of what? Anything. An idea, a procedure, an element of it. Just lack. That's three wonderful things that can be guaranteed, huh? What's another thing that can be guaranteed as an experience? Now that's what's going to happen. Sense of isolation. In fact, you could even take it to the bank. I mean, you know, when you're feeling bad, right? You're feeling anxious. If you remember that as long as you're in self-consciousness, and you know you are because you're anxious, if you just were mindful, it would disappear. Because in self-consciousness, there's going to be vacillation, you see. It's just a matter of time. And that's why sometimes you're feeling good, and the next moment, you're not feeling good. And what's your fatal mistake? You want to assign something, someone, a condition, a situation for why you're not feeling good anymore. Instead of saying, well, I'm stuck in self-consciousness, it was just a matter of time. If it's yin, it's going to be yang. If it's yang, it's going to be yin. Well, what if I move to another consciousness where there's no vacillation? Wow, I would solve that problem. And the number one. What's the number one issue if you're in self-consciousness? I'm sorry? Fear of death. That's what drives the race. Try to, trying to outrun it, outsmart it, <coughs> delay it, the fear of death. Or you could be fearless and deal with situations. That is a guarantee as long as you stay in self-consciousness. So if you wanted to see how many of your friends are in self-consciousness, ask them if they have any of those experiences. And if they say yes, well, then you know. <laughs> see, it's that easy. Ask them if they have any of those experiences. But we only do those things for what reason? So we pay attention to ourselves. Now, when I said the number one problem of the race is the fear of death, if you go back to either high school, college, what are the survival emotions? Joe, help us out. 
fear, anger, and depression. Is that where most people are? Fear, anger, and depression. Those are generated by the brain to help you survive. So if those three feelings are relative friends of yours, companions, then you know you have not resolved the issue of death, of immortality. So again and again, I'll tell you, it's very practical. It's not philosophy. You just need to wake up to the truth. Right now, right here, you are free. There must be something about you that allows that statement to be true. And yet, on the other hand, there must be something you're doing that doesn't make it obvious. So, in a sense, that final state of becoming fully awakened is really, really very anticlimactic. All the fun was had before. Why? Because it's just, oh, geez, I never was other than what I am right now. So what did you gain? Nothing. And ultimately, what did you lose? Nothing. Since you created the other, the prior experiences, you want them back? Recreate them. You really didn't lose anything. And you didn't gain anything. There is no way you can gain anything. So searching for gain, which is really the unfortunate thing in meditation. Most people meditate to get something, which is starting from the wrong premise, and it's going to keep you in the wrong frequency. Because you're doing. And you're calling what you're doing meditating. Does it help? Yeah, it's useful. Just not in helping you wake up to your essence, to the truth about you. So when we let go, one of the things that happens as a result of letting go is we relax. See, when we let go of something, we... and that will be your state. Relaxed. For who could take anything from you? No one. Who can give you anything? 
No one. So you stop playing some very interesting games. Searching, trading for acceptance, approval, love. You stop playing those games. And why can not? Why can't somebody give you something? Because you're more than anything and everything. You're more than. Okay. See, things change as you wake up. So again, just do the exercise. And you'll know when to stop. When you say, whoa, so this is where I started in Long Beach. <laughs> I've returned home. Okay? And you will know that you know. Total certainty. And that's about as exciting as it is. Yeah. Okay. All the great stuff. Okay? All the psychic stuff happened a long time ago. <laughs> that's why it's kind of anticlimactic. Because it's just seeing the truth. And unfortunately, lies are more interesting than truth. They're more fascinating and entertaining. So again, please take it as something that you have the ability to, to recognize about yourself. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. There cannot be anything more simple than to accept the premise. Right now, just, just accept it. I mean, what are you going to lose if I'm lying to you? And by the way, you notice I don't pass a hat? So I don't even gain anything by telling you the lie, huh? At least if I passed a hat, I'd say, well, hey, you know, I got to keep them coming back. <laughs> so what are you going to lose if you invest some time and energy? Okay. But the upside, wow, that is beyond, as the Buddha would say, estimation. He, he would use very interesting analogies, right? He'd say, are there are a lot of sands of grain in the Ganji River. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if each of those grains was a world, and each world was filled with the treasures of the earth, would that represent great Value. Yes. Nothing compared to this. That's nothing compared to this in value. Why? Because that's an illusion. That's illusory. And you're real. Okay? You're real. Any questions?
All right, well, again, hopefully you'll take my advice and you'll practice assigning credit to yourself, which is not you, for whatever thought, feeling, wanting exists. Because if you start to take that perspective, since you're the power, you can help yourself. Okay. All right, then. Yes, dear. Okay, they're really two different things. Manifesting and desiring are two different things. For the average person, it's very difficult for them to start manifesting without the desire. Okay? Which, by the way, should give you a clue why it's so difficult to manifest. Because if you're desiring, you're already at a very low power. But manifesting is just an ability. It's just an ability to reorganize, reinterpret the photons into a new pattern. And you have that ability. Obviously, you've created a world for yourself, so you must have the ability already. Do it as an exercise to demonstrate your ability. But if you start out by wanting, you're probably not going to have success. You're already at a very low level of power. Okay? Answer your question? Good. Any other question? All right, then we'll terminate for tonight. Take it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. You can subscribe to it, leave reviews on iTunes or wherever you downloaded it from, you can tell your friends about it or share it on social media. If you're one of George's students or friends, my hope is that this will help you recall his teachings and inspire you to share what you learned through whatever medium is most comfortable for you. Finally, for any feedback or if you'd like to find more information on Wu Wu Wei and George Falcon, you can go to the soon-to-be-released website, www.wuwuwei.net. And in the meantime, feel free to email me at zeb at wuwuwei.net. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll see you next time.